From WDBM East Lansing, this is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later, our weekly conversation on the 2020 presidential campaign with MSU political scientist Matt Grossman. And then Rich Tupica plays some music for us from the good old days. First up, though, the faculty of Western Michigan University Cooley Law School, which is in downtown Lansing, has unanimously approved an anti-racism resolution. But what exactly does that mean? To find out, I talked to the chairwoman of the faculty conference, law professor Tanya Krauss-Phelan. Uh, Professor Western Michigan uh, Cooley Law School has uh, announced a uh, policy or resolution, I guess is a better word, on racism. First of all, uh, who uh, who proposed, who voted for it, and what and then what will what uh, what would it do? Sure, thank you. Um, This was something that was initiated by faculty members and presented it to our entire faculty. And with recent events happening in this world from the effects um, systemic racism is having in the wake of COVID and the recent events with police um, shootings and deaths, our students and the legal system at large are affected by that. And as legal educators, we have a responsibility both to the legal profession and to the community to ensure that we do what we can to provide for, encourage, and support a just legal system. And with that, there were many other law schools around the country. And in fact, in our faculty resolution, we acknowledged um, the inspiration that we received from similar resolutions from Washington and Lee Law School, Penn State uh, Law School, and the Pittsburgh School of Law. Um, so that they were our inspiration, and, and some of our faculty members took uh, what they saw in those resolutions, and then we made adaptations and some changes in the ones that that we proposed. So. It it was presented at a recent uh, faculty conference meeting, and I am very proud to say that it was adopted unanimously by the faculty. And and what would uh, the resolution do? Is it uh, merely a statement, or are there actual action items that will occur? Sure. That's a great question. A resolution in and of itself, as, as your question suggests, is not a policy but it does serve as an inspiration um, to further, and we actually put some action items in this that we're committed to, um, programming for our students, access to justice for the community, um, listening to our students and community about issues of, of racism. But the thing that we have the most power over as faculty of law students is to make sure that we continue to be responsible stewards of teaching the people who are going to become lawyers um, to address issues of implicit bias, systemic racism, and to do everything within their power when they go out into the legal profession 
to make sure that they also fight racism and to do what they can to ensure that there is equal justice for all. How does uh, the Western Michigan Cooley Law School deal now with educating its students about such things as implicit racism? Great question. Um, We actually um, have begun to have implicit bias training both for faculty, staff, and students. So that is something that we're proud to say we are, are participating in. And then the other thing with recent events, especially in, in the wake of the police shootings that have, have blanketed the news, um, we have hosted several forum discussion, panel discussions for the community, alumni, and students alike where we are talking about what the issues are and how students can get involved in being part of improving the legal system with respect to racism and implicit bias. So that's something that we are really looking forward to continuing. And several of our faculty members are getting involved with local efforts to help with respect to access to fair housing, access to justice clinics, uh, police reform, judicial and the legal profession reform, around these issues. And then the other thing that we're constantly trying to improve, of course, but we um, have targeted points where we can interject education and training about systemic racism and implicit bias right within the curriculum. So for example, I teach criminal law and criminal procedure. So as you can imagine, those two subjects are are ripe for discussion about the way race impacts criminal law and criminal procedure and and justice. And so we're looking for ways that we can address that in other subjects as well. And that's one of the things we've committed to continue doing. Uh, You're listening to 89FM, the impact here at Michigan State University. We're talking to... uh, Western Michigan University Cooley Law School professor Tanya Kraus Phelan, who chairs the faculty conference, which recently unanimously approved a resolution repudiating racism. Uh, Professor, uh, what about uh, law schools themselves? Once upon a time, minorities. of all sorts, uh, struggle to get into law schools. Uh, I don't think that's the case anymore, but enlighten me. Are law schools uh, uh, open enough? Well, that continues to be a point of discussion uh, for many law schools. At WMU Cooley, we are very proud of our access mission and the representation of minorities uh, that we have across our student population. And um, it's something that we are continually seeking to support and improve, but we're very, very proud of that at at WMU Cooley. Uh, One of the points in the resolution is uh, support for peaceful protests. Uh, But uh, among these peaceful protests is the the use of the time-honored tradition of civil disobedience, in other words, breaking the law. 
how far how far does the support for peaceful protests go? Does it uh, include civil disobedience? Well, certainly, as you point out, civil disobedience has we have a long and rich history in this country of civil disobedience as part of peaceful protest. So when we say peaceful protest, we're talking about supporting the idea of getting a point across and supporting positions with nonviolence. Sometimes those protests can take on the form of civil disobedience. And individuals who engage in this type of nonviolent, peaceful protest that does fall into the category of civil disobedience, they recognize that they may very well um, face legal consequences for that. And one thing that you see popping up across the country, and other law schools are supporting this, other um, civil rights organizations are supporting this, is providing um, legal representation for people who do get arrested if they're engaged in civil disobedience. But of course, our utmost, um, our utmost concern here and what we're advocating is peaceful, nonviolent um, expression against what is wrong with systemic racism. Uh, well, uh, will we see you out on the, in the marches? Do you participate? I have not up until this point, and it's a fair question, and it's a great question. <laughs> um, the only reason I have not gone out yet is because of COVID. And yes. My husband is an at-risk person, so I have to be very, very cautious. And so I am supporting efforts in other ways um, through research and helping to write um, briefs and things like that for lawyers and organizations representing people who get caught up in legal consequences, um, as well as doing what I can to support the faculty and students at the school with what they're doing in those efforts. Um, as soon as it's safe for me to go out there, you probably will see me out there. Very good. Uh, Professor uh, Krauss-Faland, uh, thank you so much for being on City Pulse. Thank you for having me. You're listening to City Pulse on 89FM, The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Next up, the 2020 presidential campaign, as we do each week. Let's bring in MSU political scientist Matt Grossman for his observations. Matt, what's uh, on your political radar uh, in the 2020 presidential uh, campaign since last we talked? Well, we got to see uh, a new outline of uh, Joe Biden's uh, platform that he had uh, formed uh, in consultation with Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign, uh, and it was a pretty uh, full document of policy proposals, so we got uh, a hint of what was happening on the policy side. Uh, and on the president's side, uh, we are continuing to see outbursts about uh, the coronavirus and um, about the newly completed Supreme Court term. Well, let's talk about the latter uh First, uh, what are the political implications of this decision? Well, there are not a whole lot of um, implications in terms of seeing the president's taxes before the uh, election, or at least it doesn't seem to be. Um, but uh, there, there certainly is a, a broader uh, a trend here, which is that uh, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court has not necessarily met 
that uh, they would go along with what uh, President Trump wants uh, or even uh, conservative priorities uh, across uh, social issues. Um, so we are seeing um, at least uh, some of the, the promise that uh, Roberts, as the media justice, wouldn't necessarily move things um, that far from Kennedy as the media justice uh, seemed to be uh, playing out well. Roberts uh, was in the majority in nearly all, all but about two or three decisions this term. Uh, and so he really uh, does seem to be playing that institutional role of trying to mix the ideological complexion of the decisions. Uh, it's obviously a, a, a decision that strengthens our form of constitutional government of uh, the separation of uh, legislature and executive, et cetera. Uh, but uh, it, you, you don't see any immediate political implications. Uh, doesn't You don't think voters will now be saying, okay, what's your excuse for not releasing this stuff? I don't see much uh, implication on, on that side. It's a long-running theme. It's been raised, um, uh, you know, in, in the cam in the first campaign. Um, I do uh, I do think it will matter for the the conservative uh, electorate. So um, traditionally, the conservative electorate has cared more about the Supreme Court uh, than than the liberal electorate, and um, has been disappointed, has thought that uh, when they send people to Washington, that um, they, I mean, when they, when they, when they get uh, Supreme Court appointments from Republican presidents, they end up turning to the left once they get on the court. And so they'll certainly fear that that's happening again. And it's possible that the argument that if you're a conservative, you should support Trump for the Supreme Court alone um, will not uh, get as much weight this time. Uh Turning to Biden and uh, uh, his uh, policy positions, one of them uh, is uh, by American. Uh, sounds very Trumpian. Uh, yes, uh, it is a, a very popular, long-running uh, slogan, of course, and a um, uh, and a popular uh, campaign strategy. Uh, and so there's no reason that Biden wouldn't uh, wouldn't try to um, cut into uh, uh, Trump's uh, potential strength on that in the last campaign. Yeah, but uh, if we go back to the last Democratic president before uh, Obama, uh, we have Democrats firmly in favor of internationalizing our economy. Is this a real sea change? Uh, well, actually, the, the trends over the last few years have been uh, in the direction of more uh, favoritism for free trade and less for protectionism um, in response to, to Trump's uh, trade war uh, being unpopular uh, and Democrats making moves further in that direction. But people don't necessarily have completely consistent attitudes on this issue. And, you know, by American uh, remains a, a popular strategy, even if people are uh, also in favor of free trade. Uh, the, uh, the Biden and uh, the Sanders people have been working together on policy. Is this a result of that? 
I, I don't think that it, uh, it draws from that necessarily, um, but I do think that uh, people may have underestimated Biden's willingness to take on uh, policy proposals uh, from his left. Um, I don't think he had any fundamental aversion to that. I think he was just uh, uh, trying to uh, uh endorse things that were were popular and that he thought had a, had some chance of passing in the next administration and uh, the interesting outcome there is just a very long list of of policies that are uh, kind of across the board uh, liberal uh, initiatives um on the other hand they none of them are kind of completely transformative uh, almost almost all of the policy proposals are expansions of existing programs more money for uh, traditional uh, constituencies in need. So it's the normal democratic approach. It's just moving leftward kind of across the board uh, on that approach. He seems to be moving leftward on issues that were raised by uh, Sanders and uh, four years ago and reinforced now with uh, uh, the, the short, uh, sh relatively short campaign uh, waged by Elizabeth Warren and uh, Sanders this year. Where does Biden stand on issues that have arisen since then? And I'm thinking particularly of uh, police defunding. Uh, he doesn't seem to be quite as liberal as, uh, as the liberal wing of the Democratic Party on that, does he? Well, he said he's not in favor of defunding, uh, but I'm not sure that everybody means the same thing by by that. Um, obviously, you know, he was involved with the the crime bill in the 1990s, which uh, proposed you know 100,000 more uh, police officers on the streets, you know, sort of the opposite of that uh, approach. Um, and so, you know, he doesn't have a background of being um, of being in, in favor. Um, it, I, I think, we, we may be kind of overestimating the extent to which it, it is from his challenges in the primary campaign and underestimating some other trends. So. First of all, anytime you get a new possibility of new stimulus funding from the federal government, um, you know, people start to say yes to a lot more uh, policy proposals for, for spending. Uh, same, similarly, whenever we enter a recession, um, there's a whole lot more um, interest in, in proposals to, to stimulate the economy and to um, and to address um, con concerns for, for, for the poor. Uh, and, and the middle class, um, and so a, a huge proportion of the proposals in the in the newly released documents um, fall along those lines. They're things that might be kind of on the shelf proposals by uh, democratic uh, policy wonks that um, can now be brought forward and, and possibly put into a stimulus bill in the Biden presidency if it happens. Uh, one of the stories I've been seeing is there may be a lack of enthusiasm for Biden among younger black voters. And of course, uh, the black vote was critical in Michigan uh, in uh, 2016, or rather the lack of uh, uh, turnout in Detroit. Um, so how, uh, how do you think Biden is playing to black voters? Is there, do you think there's a division here that could be costly for him? Well, the um, it has been a surprise uh, in the polling that um, 
Biden has been doing um, it has been improving mainly among white voters. Um, it, it really hasn't been from gains in, in minority voters that um, that he's you know now nine points ahead in, in the average of national polls. Um, and so that has been uh, somewhat somewhat surprising. Uh, that doesn't mean that obviously has low support among uh, black voters. He has very high support. Trump has very low support. So you would expect that consolidation to to, to happen further. Um, but, you know, young people have low turnout rates overall. So it's not surprising that within the minority population, the younger uh, supporters would be less uh, apt uh, to to commit to Biden and to commit to voting now. Um, so it, it is a continuing uh, issue. Um, we don't know the extent to which it is Biden. Obviously, Hillary Clinton, um, you know, didn't do as well. And, and that was following two presidential elections where Barack Obama was on uh, the ticket. And it may have been that uh, Democrats won't be able to uh, obtain that level of African-American turnout. Um, uh, not because of, of the failures of their candidates, but because of the success of the Obama campaign. Well, let's uh, leave it there for this week. We'll talk to you uh, again next week. Matt Grossman uh, from Michigan State University. Thanks for being on City Pulse. Thank you. And for City Pulse, I'm Burl Schwartz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>